This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. So please turn to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. And as you turn there, I'm wondering if anyone else has ever seen the, the Pepsi commercials where, where these elite athletes go in disguise and do like just really funny, really funny things. So there's one where Jeff Gordon, who's the race car driver, he goes into disguise and he shows up at a car dealership and he asks for a test drive. And like they're just going along, you know, and then all of a sudden he like cranks it into gear and like whips this turn and does a 180 and he's weaving through traffic and, and he starts doing a donut in the middle of the highway and, and you're just capturing this terrified salesperson's face who starts screaming, I'm wetting myself, I'm wetting myself, you know, it's, uh, it's hilarious. One of my favorites though, uh, basketball is my favorite sports to play. And so one of my favorite ones is when Kyrie Irving, who's one of the best basketball guards uh, in, in the game, he dresses up as an old man. Uh, he dresses up as an old man. He's got knee braces on. He, he hobbles onto the court. He acts like he can barely move. Uh, the game starts, and he's kind of just like, you know, sitting like this, and he, his team's getting, getting crushed, and, 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 and his teammates are trying to be nice to him, being like, hey, I think you're just going to hurt yourself. Like, like, they're thinking we're better off without you, but, but they just want him to kind of go, go sit down. And then all of a sudden, he's like, he goes, youngins, it ain't over yet. And he takes off his knee braces and says, hold my braces. And, and the next thing you know, he is crossing people up, he's dunking, he's hitting half-court shots, he completely takes over the game, his, his team dominates and ends up winning the whole thing. Now, if Kyrie Irving had showed up just to play pickup, everyone would have expected him to be amazing. He's one of the best basketball players in the world. But because he was in disguise, because people couldn't see him, they were skeptical when he came onto the court until he started to show what he could do. As we come to the end of the book of Esther, so far, it has seemed like God is absent. He's not been mentioned once in this book. He's not been seen. And the Israelite people, the people that God had promised to take care of, because through them, he said, would come the Savior of the world, these people had become the target of an evil Persian lord named Haman, and an edict for their annihilation had been issued. It certainly seemed like the score is against them. Queen Esther was a Jew, but out of fear and sin, she had kept her nationality hidden and really sold out her faith. But then we saw in chapter 4, she has a change of heart and a transformation of character. Instead of continuing to abandon God and hide her faith, she decides to take action on behalf of her Jewish people. And she goes to the king at the risk of her own life and asks him to come to dinner. She doesn't immediately ask for her people to be saved. She asks for him to come enjoy a meal because even back then, the quickest way to a man's heart was through his stomach. And so she makes for him a wonderful meal a meal so good that the king offers to give Esther anything in his kingdom up to half of what he owns. Esther says, well, let me think it over. And I'll give you an answer tomorrow. And she invites Haman and 
and King Ahasuerus to come back tomorrow for another meal. And this is where we left off the week before Easter. And the tension at this point is very, very thick in this book. Again, the score seems to definitely be against the Jewish people. God had promised to protect them, but God seems to be nowhere to be found. But what we're going to see today is that God has been here the whole time. He's been on the court, even though no one else knew they were playing with him. God's about to say, hold my brace. This isn't over yet. And throughout the rest of this book, what we're going to see is God again and again, in greater and greater ways, delivering his people. And there's really a cascading effect that takes place in the final chapters of Esther, of of God delivering. And not only delivering, but we see him completely reversing. God not only saves his people, but he, he actually exalts them over their enemies. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to let these chapters have a cumulative effect upon us. By reading a section, giving some commentary, then reading another section and giving some more commentary. And we're going to work our way through the remaining five chapters of this book. This is not something we typically do here at Christ Church, but I believe these things should not be split up. There is a cascading, cumulative effect these glorious words are meant to have upon our soul. Because here's the deal. I know that life can sometimes feel like the score is against us. And if we're honest, I think sometimes we can even wonder where God is and why is he letting us down. What I hope, what we see today, is that while we might not always understand what God is doing, while we might not always see how he is working, while we might not agree with his timing or comprehend why he allows what he allows, God is so much of a God that he can work beyond what we can see and isn't limited by what we understand. And so when we feel overwhelmed and anxious, fearful or fatigued, We should not live by what we see or by what we feel, but by what God says is true. He isn't done yet. Things might look bad, but he isn't done yet. The God of providence, who is in control of all things at all times, the God of providence will bring about our deliverance. And so here's the title of this morning's sermon. Have courage, God isn't done yet. Have courage, God isn't done yet. That is the title, that's also the main point, and that's also the only point that I'm going to be making this morning. Let's start by reading Esther chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. This is God's holy, infallible, and authoritative word. May he be with us now by his Holy Spirit through the reading of it and preaching of it. All glory be to Christ. Esther chapter 5, verse 9. And Haman went out that day meaning the day after he just had the the, the dinner, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. 
Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pause there for a moment to start. Before the story gets better, it takes one more turn for the worse. Haman leaves the dinner with Esther and King Ahasuerus, and everything's going great until he walks past Mordecai. Mordecai is still not showing Haman the respect he thinks he deserves, and so he becomes enraged. Now think about this. He had just had dinner with the king and the queen. Like, you couldn't get more honor than that. Life is going well for Haman. Why is he so worried about what one insignificant person thinks about him? Friends, when our emotions are out of proportion to what is actually happening, we should pay attention because most likely one of our idols is being exposed. By idol, I don't mean a little statue that we worship. How the Bible talks about idolatry is that we can all be tempted to worship things or people other than God. Idols are what are most important to us, what we think really matters, where we find our value, our purpose, and our Meaning, I want to suggest to you this morning that Haman had an idol of respect. And so he was joyful when he got the respect of being at the dinner with the king and queen because his idol was being stroked. But he became enraged when he didn't get respect for Mordecai because his idol was being attacked. He has to go home and call his buddies over and, and say, look at all these great things I did just to, just to build himself up again. We don't have the opportunity to have Haman on the counselor's couch, but let's put ourselves on that for a moment. What brings out the strongest emotions in you? Chances are that how you answer that question, how you think about what gets you most upset, is probably telling you something about what you're truly worshiping. We can tell our idols based upon our emotions. Haman becomes enraged at Mordecai. He goes home whining to his wife and buddies. And instead of them doing him the service of telling him that he's wrong, they affirm his sinful feelings. Yes, that's terrible. You should, you should kill him. They affirm Mordecai. Our culture holds up affirming individuals and their feelings as one of the highest ethics, the best thing you can do for someone. But actually, it might be the worst thing you can do for someone if what they're feeling is contrary to what God says is right. If his wife and friends really cared about Haman, they should not have affirmed him. They should have challenged him and stood up for righteousness. But his inner circle goes right along with his feelings. You need to be true to you. And they give Haman the idea to have a gallows built for Mordecai, and he loves it. 
He starts to construct the blueprints. The next day he goes to see the king to talk about it. But the night before he goes to see the king, something happens in the king's life. Again, let's just pay attention to the timing here. There's a dinner. Haman leaves the dinner, and he's up all night plotting so that next morning he can go see the king. And in between that time, this is what's going on in the king's life. Let's look at chapter 6. On the night, that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bichnatha and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. The king can't sleep. Literally, the Hebrew phrasing here says, sleep fled him. I wonder who made it flee. The king can't sleep, so he asks for someone to come read to him. And they start to read, and in their reading, they just happen to read the page where it's discovered that Mordecai had made known a plot against the king's life and had saved the king's life. Now, if you remember, that happened all the way back in chapter 2, at least seven to nine years before this sleepless night. Normally, it would have been the custom for someone who saved the king's life to be honored. But for some reason, Mordecai had been overlooked. I wonder who here has ever felt overlooked. You ever wonder, God, do you see what I'm doing and how I'm trying to honor you? Why is nothing being done for me? Mordecai had been overlooked, but not because God had forgotten him. Mordecai had been overlooked. Because God had a greater deliverance that was coming for him. Mordecai had been overlooked in that moment because God was setting up this moment on this sleepless night. Look at what happens next in verse 4 of chapter 6. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, friends, you can't read that and tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. This is hilarious. Like, like he could have delivered Mordecai in all kinds of ways. 
But this is how God chooses to do it. The very guy who had shown up to ask the king if he can kill Mordecai ends up having to lead Mordecai around on a horse saying how great he is. We're supposed to be laughing as we're reading this. This is not just God delivering. This is God making a mockery of someone who thought they could be his enemy. This this is not just a deliverance. This is deliverance by reversal. I mean, just imagine you're Haman. You show up your speech all rehearsed for the king. Before you get out, the king says he wants to honor someone. You're like, oh, great. My day's getting even better. I'm going to kill somebody, and I'm going to get on. And he just goes down the list of all things he wants. I want your game-worn robe and your game-ridden, you know, you know the horse. And I, I just want all, all, he, he lays out his idea of a perfect day. And the king says, great, do that for this person. Like, can you imagine how Haman must have felt leading Mordecai around on that horse? Can you imagine how God in heaven must have been laughing, making a mockery of anyone who tries to oppose him? This is the power of God. You know what's interesting is that Haman's wife actually, she gets it. Because look what verse 13, seven, it's the verse, uh, 13 says in chapter 6. And Haman told, Haman told his wife and all his friends everything that happened to him. This wise man and his wife said to him, that this is what she says, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely fall before him. His wife gets it. She's like, wow, this is too much of a coincidence. This must be a sign. I'd recommend laying off the Jewish people. And here the whole story begins to turn. From now on, nothing bad happens throughout the rest of this book to the Jewish people. It's going to be just deliverance after deliverance after deliverance. The whole story turns. Think about it. What makes this whole story turn? A few insignificant details. What makes the whole story turn is Esther not giving her request on the first night, But telling the king to come back the next night. That leads to the king having a sleepless night. And in that sleepless night, the king decides to read a book. And in that insignificant thing of reading a book, he reads about a story about someone who should have been honored that wasn't. Because of some insignificant clerical error that occurred. We have a dinner delay. We have a sleepless night. We have a clerical error of someone forgetting to reward someone. All those things by themselves as isolated events, they seem to be somewhat insignificant. But friends, there are no unnecessary details in the story that the divine author is writing. No one could have seen what God was doing in any of those things. But all those insignificant moments were leading up to this moment when God's deliverance would be revealed. Listen, friends, you might think there's nothing of significance going on in your life, but there are no unnecessary details in your story. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And just because we can't see his hand, that does not mean that he is not working out his plan. While we might feel forgotten sometimes, have courage, friends. God isn't done yet. And let me ask you this, what was Mordecai doing while God was setting up this moment of his deliverance? Haman goes and 
throughout the night. He's making blueprints for this gallows to have Mordecai kill. He's rehearsing his pitch to the king. All throughout the night, Mordecai's enemy is plotting against him. What is Mordecai doing? Well, we're actually not told, but it's, it's the night, so I'm guessing that he's sleeping. So think about what's happening. While Mordecai is sleeping and his enemy is plotting, God is still working. And so on the night when a plot against Mordecai is being devised, the king just happens to not be able to sleep. He just happens to ask for a book to be read. The page just happens to go to a page about Mordecai. Then, the, then in the morning, Mordecai's enemy just happens to be the one to come to the king first thing, that the king sees first thing and has put in a place to be able to honor Mordecai. Are those things just really happening? Absolutely not, friends. There is nothing that happens by coincidence when everything is ruled over by the God of providence. And so listen, friends. We don't have to stay up worrying about tomorrow when the one who never sleeps nor slumbers is on our side. You can go to sleep. And you don't have to worry about how you're going to have to provide for yourself. You don't have to worry about what could be or might be happening to you. You can go to sleep in peace because God never sleeps. And even though in the middle of the night your enemy might be plotting against you, God has promised he's going to protect you. And so go to sleep and don't worry because God is going to be working no matter what. We don't have to stay up worrying when God is the one who is protecting. But God isn't done yet. Just as Haman's wife gets finished warning him off, like, hey, you shouldn't go there. Before Haman has even the opportunity to, to process that and act on that, and maybe I should back off this whole thing, watch what happens next, starting in verse 14 of chapter 6. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. He had spent all day honoring Mordecai. Comes home at the end of the day, his wife says, hey, you probably should lay off the Jewish people. And while they're discussing that, he gets asked to come to this feast with the queen. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine at the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. Then the king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. 
Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the, on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Friends, here the moment comes. Esther makes her request. She pleads for the life of her people. She had previously done a good job of hiding her Jewish identity. Apparently, the king didn't even know that his wife was a Jew. I think they had a few marital issues going on. But she lets him know now. And she tells them that it is this man sitting here at the table who is plotting these things. Now, the king is furious, but he has a dilemma. Right? He's the one who signed the law that allowed the Jews to be killed. So, so here's the king's dilemma. How can he save his wife while still also saving face? That's why he goes out in the garden. He's just trying to think about what to do. He doesn't immediately order his execution. Did you notice that? He can't do that right away. On what charge could he kill Haman? On the charge of making a law that the king himself signed into law? The king has a dilemma. How can he save his wife and save face? So he goes out into the garden, and as he does, Haman falls down at the feast of Esther and begins to beg for his life. And the king comes back, and in that picture, he sees the perfect excuse to have Haman killed. He accuses him of trying to assault his wife. Now, that's obviously not what is happening here, right? But provides the grounds that the king needs to have Haman put to death. And so in the very gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, he himself is hung. And the one who wanted to kill the Jew, Mordecai, for not falling down to bow before him, is executed because he falls down to bow before the Jew, Esther. You see what God's doing, friends? This is dripping with irony. And it's all on purpose that we can see God is not only delivering, but we can see the power of God through his deliverance is that he delivers in such a way to show that he's actually reversing everything that had been wrong, God is reversing and now making right. You might have enemies that are building a gallows for you. But when God's on your side, the gallows that they built to do you harm, they're going to hang on themselves. Because God himself brings about deliverance. But did you notice that it says that the king's anger was abated? So like he, he does away with Haman. Haman's killed. Haman's out of the picture. The king's like, okay, save my wife. I'm good. But he still doesn't address the main issue. And so let's look at chapter 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. She said, if it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letter devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamathra, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the providence of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Oh, how much Esther has changed. Do you remember back in chapter 4 how she reacted when Mordecai first told her that all the Jews were going to be killed? She essentially said, not my problem. 
She was only worried about herself. But friends, she's a different person here in chapter 8. Her life's been spared, but she's not okay with just her life being spared. Praise God. If he knows how to meet us where we are, but doesn't leave us as we are, he makes us different people. Now she's not just worried about herself. She says she can't bear to see calamity come upon her people. She's not just worried about her individual salvation. She wants to see others saved. Do we want the same? In our culture, we are told to keep our faith private. And to not speak up about salvation. It can be seen as offensive even to talk about the need for salvation. And I think, if we're honest, it can become very easy for us to be comfortable in us just having our salvation. We have our Christian friends, our Christian small groups, we come to our Christian church. And over time, our hearts can grow callous towards the reality that there are still many people that we interact with on a daily basis who are in need of salvation. Friends, we should never be content to just be saved ourselves. Our hearts should break for those who have yet to experience the salvation of Jesus. Let us be clear. There is an edict of death that hangs over humanity. And not from an unjust evil Lord like Haman, but from the just God, the Lord of life. God gave us life to live for Him, but we instead choose to go our own way and live for other things. And so God's justice demands that he takes back our life. The penalty for sin against the Lord of life is death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. Spiritual separation from God. Sin is us saying, God, I don't want you. Justice is God saying, fine, have it your way. Hell is being left alone with the worst parts of ourselves forever. This is the edict that hangs over humanity. And what should our response be to that? I think Charles Spurgeon captures it well when he says, look at any unconverted person and your sympathies should be aroused. If I saw tokens of fever or marks of consumption in the face of anyone I love, I should be struck with alarm. What then must I feel when I see damnation as I do see it in the face of every unbeliever? How is it that we are not more distressed than we are when men are perishing in their sins? Friends, Esther could not bear to see calamity come upon her kindred. May we not bear for calamity to come upon anyone that we owe. May our hearts break for the lost. If you're here and you, you don't know Jesus, or you're watching online, I don't want a Sunday to go by where I'm not pleading with you to come to Christ for salvation. I don't want to manipulate you or pressure you or coerce you. We're not going to lower the lights and have some kind of music that's going to move you to do something. Uh, we're not going to play those games. I just want to be very sincere with you. Jesus came and died 
He experienced your hell on the cross so that you could be saved from God's judgment as He took your place. And I pray and plead with you every Sunday that you would come to Him for He is the only one in which there is salvation. Friends, may our hearts break. Hearing you don't know Jesus, I, I love you, and I'm not going to come up and try to personally accost you after the service. But I want you to know that my heart breaks for you. Because I don't want to be in heaven without you. Friends, may we, if you're, if you're here and you know Jesus, may we never be content in our own salvation. As we sing songs, like we sang this morning, of made alive in Christ, may we sing that with joy, but also the thought that there are people who the edict of death still hangs over their head. May we never be content to just be comfortable in our own salvation when there are lost and dying sinners in this neighborhood and in your workplaces and in your schools and in your We can trust God for salvation. We don't have to live with an angst. We believe God's the one who saves, and so we don't have to put a pressure upon ourselves. Oh, but friends, we should feel a burden to go before our king and ask for the salvation of our people. May we pray daily for opportunities to share about the good news of Jesus. Mordecai and Esther come to the king and they make this request. And, and here's the king's response. It's given in verse, in verse 8. He can't just say, I'll revoke it because you can't revoke a law that's already been written. But this is what he says. You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. God moves in the king's heart. And he gives them his ring. Now notice, this is the same ring that was used to make an edict against the Jewish people. Now it's being used to write into law a message of salvation for the Jewish people. They can't reverse the edict of death that's already been signed into law. But they can write a competing edict that says the Jews will be able to defend themselves. And as they do so, what they're signaling to the entire nation is that they have the king's backing. And so now instead of their enemies feeling emboldened to have free reign to take them out, now these enemies know that these people, the king has said they should be defended. Like the king has said, he's got their back. And so you know what happens as a result? Well, we see what happens as a result in chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's edict and command were about to be carried out, that's the edict of their annihilation, on the very day... When the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their city throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. For fear of them had fallen on the peoples. Friends, before this day, the Jewish people had been a beaten people. 
Mordecai and Esther had been so afraid that they were scared to even identify that they were Jews. But now instead of cowering in fear, their enemies are the ones on the run. Their enemies are the ones who are afraid. Because God's hand, though unseen, was clearly evident in his protection over their lives. And so the day that was supposed to be their demise became the day when God drove out all of their enemies. This is not just deliverance. This is deliverance by reversal. It's a deliverance so great that they actually create a feast to remember what happened on this day. We read about this feast in verses 26 and 28 of chapter 9. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in the letter, and what they faced in this matter, and of what happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves, and all spring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the appointed time every year. That these days should be remembered, and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. It's called Purim because if you remember, Pure was the name of the die that Haman cast in chapter 3 to determine the day that he was going to kill the Jews. He, he, cast, he cast die or lots for it to determine it. And so Purim means, it's the noun form of that. It, it means lots. That's what the casting of die was called. It was called casting lots. And so Purim is known as the Feast of Lots where it's celebrated to show that nothing happens by chance. Not even the roll of a dice. Everything happens according to the plan of God. God is the God of providence. He is in control of all things at all times. And so there's nothing that can stop his promise of deliverance. And the Jewish people still celebrate Purim. It was actually just celebrated last month. But friends, Purim was actually never meant to be the end. It was always meant to point beyond itself to something even greater. And we see that through the concluding three verses of this book. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might. And the full count of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all people. Now, on the one hand, this book's closes by showing us the, the position of Mordecai being reversed. He's not only been saved from death, but he's been exalted to second in command. And yet, friends, did you notice there's still a problem in Persia? Yes, Haman has been killed. Yes, the Jewish lives have been protected. Yes, there's now a Jew in a place of power. That, that's all great stuff. But the main problem of this book is still not addressed. In chapter 1, who was it that ordered the queen Vashti out of his kingdom in an unjust way? King Ahasuerus. In chapter 2, who was it that ordered hundreds of women to be ripped from their home to put on an ancient equivalent of the bachelor, parade themselves before him? That was King Hoswares. 
In chapter 3, who was the one who thoughtlessly signed an edict giving permission for an entire people to be annihilated? King Ahasuerus. At every turn, it's been the king who is doing the wrong thing. He's actually been the real problem. None of this happens without the king doing what he did. And this book closes here with what? Once again, drawing attention to the actions of the king. It closes by saying that he imposed a tax on his land. And that word imposed means that this is not just an ordinary tax. No, there's a heavy burden here of injustice. This is squeezing more money out of the people. If you think about it, the author did not have to include that detail. The story was over. We could have ended with, hey, here, here's, the, here's why we celebrate Purim and go in peace, be warm, be filled, story over. Chapter 10 didn't have to happen. What else is really added to the story in chapter 10? What's added to the story in chapter 10 is we see there's still a problem in Persia. Did you Mordecai was second in command? It said he could speak peace, but didn't say he could bring peace. He was in a place of influence, but he was not in a place of authority or power. There was still an evil king on the throne. And so Esther intentionally ends by showing us that there's a need for a greater king. And God still isn't done yet. Because there is one who would come and who would bring about an even greater redemption and deliverance through an even greater reversal. Yes, we were under an edict of death for our life of sin, but Jesus came to deliver us and reverse our fate. And he delivered us through experiencing a reversal himself. Not first a reversal of deliverance, but first Jesus experienced the reversal of damnation. He gave up his crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He gave up his scepter of righteousness for steel spikes driven through his hands and feet. He gave up his throne for a cross because he gave up his holiness to take on our sinfulness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus came, and there was a reversal as he went into death to pay for our punishment of death. But God wasn't done yet. There was another reversal still to come. And so the death of Jesus on Friday gave way to the reversal of resurrection on Easter Sunday. As he burst forth from the grave with the deliverance of our salvation in his hand. And so now anyone who comes to Jesus and puts their faith in him will be delivered from the death we deserve. And get to experience the eternal life that he has earned for us. Our fate can be reversed. And we can have true, lasting, eternal peace with God. And life forevermore because of the better king who has come. But friends, God still isn't done yet. Oh yes, today is the day of salvation. And we can know peace with God right here, right now. Praise the Lord. But God isn't done yet. While we experience individual salvation, all of creation 
still groans under the curse of sin. But a day is coming when all the broken pieces of this world will give way to the beauty of the new creation. We're told about what it's going to look like when God is done in Revelation chapter 21. This is, this, this is when God will be done. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with him as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Friends, God isn't done yet. And he won't be done until that day comes. The day when all brokenness gives way to beauty. All pain gives way to peace. All emptiness gives way to wholeness. You need to know, friends, there is nothing that the curse of sin has touched in this world and in your life that God won't reverse in the new creation that is to come. Take courage, friend. Every regret will be reversed to redemption. Every loss will be reversed to restoration. Every sadness will be reversed to satisfaction. Every injustice will be reversed to vindication. There might be things that bring tears to your eyes right now and weigh heavy as burdens on your heart. But there's a day coming when every tear will be wiped away by the nail-scarred hands of Jesus who died and rose again to make all things so as we come to the end of Esther, friends, this book is meant to fill our hearts with faith to trust God. When we don't see what He's doing, may we trust that He's still moving. May we have courage that He isn't done yet. Close with this story. Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, he, he, he faced some challenges in his life. Uh, one of them was that he was frequently prone to depression. And I can understand that because on most of his days he was being threatened with death and I'm guessing that gets to you after a while. But he had an amazing wife who did not just affirm his feelings but who loved him enough to challenge him. And so the story goes actually that on days when Martin Luther was depressed, his wife Catherine would put on funeral clothes and would say, if you're going to act like God is dead, I might as well mourn his passing. And through that sarcastic irony, she was making the point that God is not dead, and so there's never a reason to despair. Friends, may we not act like our God is dead, because he's not. We will be delivered. It might not be tomorrow or the next month or the next year, but the God of providence who works in unseen ways, he has made us this 
promise. He has promised that he won't be done until we are living in the glory of his deliverance of the new creation. And so when we're tempted to feel overwhelmed or anxious or depressed or fearful, take courage, friends. God isn't done yet. Let's pray.